Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. And I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social, and some people, like Carrie, say I can be a little overly enthusiastic. Can you believe that? Hard to believe. Each week, we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book-adjacent topics such as Stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR lists. Film adaptations that we've seen. And bookish news. At the end of the show, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and a laugh or two along the way. A literary salon sounds so posh, doesn't it? I imagine the lost generation of writers, Ernest Hemingway, Henry Miller, Gertrude Stein, sitting around in a Parisian flat discussing the newest trends in literature. But what exactly is a salon? Or what can it be? Our guest this week, Cindy Burnett, hosts a literary salon in Houston, Texas called Conversations from a Page and tells us all about what one version of a salon can be. Amy may be well on her way to starting her own salon because she was so intrigued by this idea. You need to call me. We're going to work it out. But Cindy is also a podcast host, and her show, Thoughts from a Page, is an extension of her salon in podcast form that airs twice a week. She interviews authors of books that she has read and has earned her seal of approval. We find out her favorite national parks, what she misses about being a lawyer, and one reason she won't read a book. But first, I know last week I said that I turned my husband's offer to go to a movie down because he chose Dungeons and Dragons. And I just wasn't sure I wanted to sit through two and a half hours of Dungeons and Dragons. But this week we went. We went yesterday. And um, and you're still not sure you want to sit through two hours <laughs> of Dungeons and Dragons. And yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure. I mean, I'm glad I went because... We just don't go to a lot of movies anymore. We watch most things at home. But I do enjoy going to the movie theater and eating the popcorn. And I love seats that will recline back. So that was good. The movie itself, I don't know. I mean, it got really good reviews. Like on, um, oh, Flickster. Mm-hmm. You know, it got like a 90% Happy Tomato. It's not called Happy Tomato. It's called uh, like Tomato Meter you know, among critics, got like a 90% positive, 93% positive among viewers. Apparently, I'm not that viewer. I thought it was a little bit cheesy. And the special effects they used, (laughs) they were not very good. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Yes, I wondered if it was. Chris and I talked about that. It reminded me of some movies from the 80s, right? And I thought, well, maybe they mean to do that because... Dungeons and Dragons is really big in the 80s, you know, so maybe that was meant to be. I don't know. I asked my husband what he thought about it because he played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons when he was a kid and he thought it was a meh. He thought it was going to be a lot funnier than what it was. So, you know, I don't want to discourage anybody else from going because maybe it's your jam. It just, you know, it was fine. It was fine. I mean, I can think of other dates I'd rather do with my husband than that. So you're not exactly the target audience of. No, I'm not. I think that we need to start a new segment, Carrie, which Mm -hmm. is what boring things did Carrie do this week? Because every week when we do this and I say, so what's been going on? Nothing. Mm -hmm. And then you'll say, I cleaned out my car or (laughs) I had to lice all the the cat's litter box or (laughs) 
or something like that. It's always really thrilling. So I'm going to ask you, what boring thing did you do this week, Carrie? (laughs) Okay. Well, you called me yesterday and you were doing yard work. We have very different telephone philosophies, (laughs) what I have discovered. And I knew this because like when you were on vacation, you will call me just to chat, which is fine. But when I am on vacation, it's like there is this invisible wall between me and home and anybody who lives at home. I want no contact. Home does not exist anymore. Anyway, so I knew we had different philosophies, but you called me while you were doing yard work. And I was like, wow, that is yet another way in which we're different because you said, here's what clued me in that you were doing yard work. You said, can you dig a hole for me? What the heck's going on? What are you talking about? Anyway, you were talking to, I guess, Chris. Anyway, so you were doing yard work. (laughs) So my philosophy when I'm at home, my philosophy is if I am talking on the phone, I am sitting talking on the phone. That's the only thing I'm doing. And so what I was doing, you were digging holes and planting flowers. I was looking at my toes (laughs) while we were on the phone. And I realized that my left foot, middle toe leans like a lot to the left. And that is not the case on my right foot. My right middle toe is, is sticks up straighter, not not much lean to it anyway. So that's what I was doing. (laughs) Looking at your toes, (laughs) looking at my toes while we were talking. I I guess I multitask when I'm doing things, Mm -hmm. which is, can be a bad thing because maybe that means I'm not giving you my undivided attention. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's a bad thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's just what I do. I just, it's just, I don't think it's bad or good. I mean, I, it, like you said, it's just, it is what it is. And the funny thing is, you found a video of dogs yes. that yes. I think we ought to post this on social media after this episode airs because this video perfectly, <laughs> just it shows our personalities, how we go about things. What I find is if I try to do two things at once, I lose focus on one of them. Like, and, and I am the example of, of that <laughs> because I say I multitask, but I probably, oh, well, I'm sure start something and then I go and do something else. And then I forgot that I was doing, you know, the first thing and which shows in this video and I will post it, but it's basically two dogs on a, it's like on an agility course, right? I think it's like a distraction course is what I well, think it is. <laughs> maybe. But the first dog is like a police dog. It's it's not a German Shepherd. It's called a Belgian Malinois. But it's like a German Shepherd, but even more badass than a German <laughs> Shepherd. <laughs> and then the other dog is a Golden Retriever. <laughs> so on this agility course, the dog just has to go from point A to point B, which is basically a straight line, but it is focused from getting to point A to point B. And you're right. There's lots of distractions around. The Belgian Malinois does it perfectly. Just went straight there. The golden retriever. Oh, it's look, there's a toy. Oh, <laughs> and the funniest thing is that they put the Benny Hill soundtrack <laughs> to the golden retriever. I think that just, yep, perfect. <laughs> so you sent that to me and I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, because what happens is I'll have ideas for the podcast and I'll text them all to you. Although occasionally I'll text you some, I'll email you some, I'll message you on Facebook. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> that is wherever you are, whatever you are doing, 
Whatever. If you're on Instagram, you message me on Instagram. If you're on Facebook, you message me on Facebook. I was, I was actually telling Dean about that too. I'm like, she doesn't use the documents. We have what? documents. Yeah. You say, just don't text me, just put it in the document. So I was sending her this video because to me, this was the perfect example of not being able to get from point A to point B in a straight line. Oh my goodness. That uh, was pretty funny though. <laughs> we are recording this on Sunday, April 23rd. I'm a little sad and I'm a little jealous of people who were able to go to the LA Festival of Books this weekend in Los Angeles because I should have been there, Carrie. I should have been there and I'm feeling very sad. Technically, you could have been there, but you were too cheap. Yes, I was too cheap. (laughs) (laughs) I was too cheap. So our friend Jennifer Caloyeras from Books Are My People podcast, she invited us to come to the LA Book Festival uh, about a month and a half ago, and there was no way in hell that you were going to go, Carrie, no. because you you don't work in short increments like that. That is no. too soon I, for I, you. Yeah, too many balls in the air that I juggle. And a month's <laughs> notice, it ain't going to happen. But I thought I actually might be able to go. And so I I Googled flights, and they looked like they were fairly cheap actually, to Los Angeles from Louisville. They weren't too bad. And so I said to Jennifer, if you're really serious, I think I might be able to come. And so she and I went back and forth for a few days about times and dates and everything. And then by the time I was able to book it, the prices of flights had shot up to like $600 a person. And I just couldn't justify going for two days for $600. So that's a lot of money for that's for a lot days. of money. But I yeah. was so sad because several of our former guests were going to be there. Rachel Harper, who we interviewed earlier this season, was going to be there. I thought I might get to meet Bailey from the To Read List podcast, and I'd get to meet Jennifer for the very first time. But it, alas, did not work out. But she says that we have a standing invite for next year, and so we need to we need to do that, Carrie. Now next year, I can work with. 12 full months away, I can work with that. One month, yep, nope. <laughs> I like to fly by the seat of my pants. And you all- the seat of my pants is $600. <laughs> and then you're not into it so much. But you know what? If I were like our guest this week, Cindy Burnett, I could have just driven there because she loves to take road trips. And so... You know, I could have just driven there from Louisville. It would have taken me a week to get there for two days. But But we are so excited to have Cindy on the show this week. She is like the queen of bookish endeavors. Absolutely. Let's talk to Cindy. Cindy Burnett, we're going to talk to you about all the cool bookish things you're doing. You are located in Houston, Texas. I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carrie and Amy, for having me on. So it's always so fun for me when we have fellow book podcasters on because, you know, we can talk shop a little bit. But you're not just a book podcaster. You're also a book columnist, and you also host literary salons in your hometown of Houston, Texas. So it sounds very fancy. Like I imagine, like in Paris in the 1920s, you know, Ernest Hemingway. So tell us about the literary salon. 
Well, I laugh when you say that about the name. We had the hardest time coming up with what to call it because it's not a book club. We don't read the book ahead and discuss it. It's a much larger group than most book clubs are. We went round and round on various names and literary salon is what we landed on, but we do get a little bit of pushback sounds negative, but a little bit of people asking us, okay, that sounds very fancy. And our, our deal is not very fancy. It's called conversations from a page. Is that correct? Yes. So we took the name from Thoughts from a Page and just varied it up a little bit. And we launched in October of 2018. So before that, uh, Catherine Center, the author, lives here in Houston. Her kids go to school with my kids. And she was having, I think it was How to Walk Away was coming out. And I hosted an event for her. And it was so fun. And people were like, we love this. We'd love to do something like it again. At the time, I did it by myself in my home. And Catherine just spoke. I didn't interview her. So then I had made a variety of connections with authors through various Facebook groups. I'd gone to Book Expo in New York City when it was still happening. And so I asked a couple of authors who one of them had a connection to Texas. If you're coming to Texas, I'd love to host you. She's like, oh, I'll come for this. And she suggested another author. So it was Amy Popel and Susie Orman-Schnall. And they came in October of 2018. And I suddenly realized, like, I can't interview them and host this thing and, you know, try to deal with the books. And so I asked one of my close friends who loves to host things at her home, would you like to be the host of the home? And then I can kind of take care of the author parts of it. So we did that. We had a huge turnout. We sold out the books. And again, when is the next one? And so we just went from there and it's been so much fun. We do seven or eight a year. It's in the morning during the school year and it's at night once a time in the summer. The wheels in my head are turning because I'm like, oh, I wonder if I could do something like this. It sounds like such a cool idea. So you always had it in somebody's home? It's always been in Krista's home. The two of us are the co-founders and it's always at her house and it's almost always in the morning because I worked at a bookstore for years and most of those author events are at night. And at the time we had school age kids, you know, middle school and high school, and you can't do anything at night. You know, they've got sporting events or concerts or homework to get done and everybody else is in the same boat. And we could every once in a while carve out time to go see an author we wanted at a bookstore. But we felt morning would be the time to pick people up right after drop-off or right before they go work out or whatever it is. And that timing has worked so well. So the two things that have worked really, really well for it is the timing because it's different than anything else, but also the fact that it is in a home and we provide breakfast and coffee and the authors mingle with everybody. So versus, you know, you go to an author event at a bookstore and they stand up front and they talk to the group or more now with COVID, there's more interaction. Like usually there's two authors. So at least they're in conversation, but then you stand in line you go through the line, you quickly get your book signed, and you're done. But this is totally different. The author's there at the beginning and at the end, and everybody gets to talk. Sometimes we we usually have two. A couple times lately, we've had one because of who they were. But we usually have two, and they mingle with everybody and talk, and then they talk about their books, and then we sell the books. How many people attend one of these? Well, right before COVID hit, we had gotten to about 120. And then COVID, yeah, COVID pushed us online. And so we met on Zoom for a while, but then, you know, Zoom was kind of an overload after a while. So we just kind of shut down, period. And then when COVID allowed us to reopen, which I think we did, you know, Texas, we reopened pretty quick, but we did not start the salon. I think it was September 2021. And we kind of had to start from scratch. I think things were opening again. Everybody felt like they had 8,000 things to do, but a lot of people were also nervous. Mm -hmm. So um, the recent ones we've had, we had 80 at the one this week and we had over 100 for Jane Harper. 
what has been the response from the authors who have come to do them? Because it is such a different setting than a bookstore. They love it. Jane Harper carried on and on and on. This is my favorite event on this entire tour, probably my favorite event I've ever done. Oh, wow. The publicist was with her. She said the same thing. Now Flatiron is pitching us all of their authors to do. <laughs> um, and same with Winfan Mai, who we hosted this week. I think because it is so much more personal and intimate and we get a lot of people there. And I think that helps because, you know, you're on tour. You don't ever know, unless you're Kristen Hanna, whether you're going to have five people or 20 people. And we have a built-in group. We have 650 people on our list. Now, I would say probably 100 to 150 are on the list just to see who we're picking. And they'll, you know, they'll buy the book elsewhere. They don't even often live in town. But then the rest of the people come when they can. So we get anywhere from 80 to 110, I think, most of the time. So how did you let people know that you were going to do this? And was it something where anybody can just join the list? I guess I'm, I'm wondering about the logistics of the crowd. Well, we'd send evites. And so we have an email system. We have a website, Conversations from a Page. I think it's cfapage.net. And people have to sign up to get on our list. So, you know, it's one little barrier, an email, you know, it's not a huge barrier, but then we send an evite. And that way, at least we're not putting Krista's address on the internet. And there's a little bit of safeguarding. She's always at the door greeting everybody. We've managed to just have it be people who really want to read. Now, occasionally somebody will come and it won't be their thing and they won't come again, but almost everybody else comes and says, oh my gosh, I need to tell all of my friends about this. Now, is there like a cover charge is not really the right word, but is there a fee involved since you're having breakfast as well? We don't charge a fee. We do get 10% of the book sales from Blue Willow when they sell the books. So that helps. And we also do sponsorships. So people can sponsor a particular salon and that helps a lot to defray the cost because we rent chairs, we have the website, we have the Evite fee. So I would say we we a little more than break even. Mm-hmm. Amy, did it change your mind when you heard like 80 to 120 people? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I really, can't have that many people right, in the house. Really, I really feel like that. <laughs> I can almost hear the wind coming out of your sails. <laughs> That's the perfect thing about Krista's home is it is so open. So her den just kind of bleeds into her kitchen, bleeds into the other room. So it, you can, you can accommodate way more people than you would think you could. Mm-hmm. So, but I would think even if you did a smaller event, because I'm thinking of a lot of the book events that I attend. Now, we have a very nice independent local bookstore, but their area where they have their book events probably can't seat more than, you think, 50 people, Carrie? Uh, that's being really generous. Yeah. So I mean, really generous. if an author comes there, they probably know that not more than about 50 people are going to be able to come to their event. But if you're selling books too and- you know, we only do seven or eight a year, so we really yeah. don't host that many of them. And I, I try so hard to pair them because I think it's such a great thing to have two authors together, often different genres instead of the same as a bookstore would do, because somebody will say, oh, I really like historical fiction. I'm going to come listen to that one. And then they end up loving the other author as well. So there's a lot of cross-buying and cross-promoting. But I think you're right. The only thing that's different with the bookstore, and I know this just having worked at one, is Murder by the Book probably couldn't hold more than 70 or 80, but they sell tons more books for their customers. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it's a little different for us. Though what I tell all of the publicists is we get so many people who listen to books or read on their Kindle or read digitally another way, and they also are buying the book. So our book sales are not the only 
indicator of how many people bought the book. I think it's probably two to three times that. Now, when you have two authors there, are they sort of interviewing each other? They're in conversation with me. Well, I'm curious to know, you know, from the time that you first started doing the literary salon to now, have there been changes, you know, because a lot of times you you have an idea of we're going to start doing something and then the reality of doing it makes you kind of tweak things. So have there been ideas or plans that you had when you first started that you now you've made changes? Well, we did a newsletter for a while, but I think we felt that wasn't really necessary, that most of the people just want to come hear the authors. And, and the newsletter was fine, and I think it was a good way to promote, but I don't think we really need it. We use social media. Um, I, I have learned that the more engaging an author is, the better the event is. So I definitely vet a little more online now if I don't already know the author to see how engaging they are, what they're going to talk about. And when you have two authors, you really have to have people that understand and are cognizant of the timing and to make sure that they both get Mm. equal timing because we definitely had a lot of trouble with that one time. Mm. So we had one author talking and talking and talking and I had fits getting to get the other author, let her talk. And so, you know, that was really difficult. So I try to do a little more vetting with respect to that now. But no, we did do twice. We did two interviews for a while to try to catch the people right after drop off and then people that were coming like, after working out closer to lunch, but that was too much. So we did stop doing that. We just do, and that was also to spread the crowd out, Mm. but we found that really she can accommodate so many more people than we thought she could. So just doing the one interview is much easier and better and people can mingle and chat. And the greatest thing about it, in addition to introducing these authors to all of these different people is that so many people have made friends at our event Mm -hmm. and they see each other at the event, but they also see each other outside the event. Like we've really brought all of these readers together in Houston and that makes me so happy. Personally, I love that you call it a literary salon. I I don't see that there's anything off-putting about that at all. I think it sounds very cool. Well, and it's a fun name for it. And then you asked how we grew. So we just kept telling everybody we knew, tell everybody you know. Mm. And so every time we open one up, we're like, please tell your friends, tell your book clubs. And so the list has just slowly grown that way. I'm always, you know, partial to podcasts. Your podcast, it's called Thoughts from a Page. You, You told me before we started recording that it's been going on for about three years. How did this get started? I have this salon and people kept saying to me, you really like interviewing authors. It's something you're comfortable doing. You should launch a podcast. And this was pre-COVID. And I was like, what's a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) So that shows my knowledge there. And then COVID hit and there was so much going on and I needed something to focus my energy and nervousness and everything into. So I launched it in June of 2020. Oh, wow. So like, right. uh, That was early days. It was. I'm really type A, as we talked about before we started recording. And I was doom scrolling and I was, my kids are older, so they were able to handle all their school stuff. And I just needed something to focus on. And as you both know, podcasting takes an incredible amount of time. So this was the perfect thing to focus on. You said that this was, was it springboard from the literary salon that you started during COVID? And I know exactly how that feels because during COVID, I was so thankful that we did this podcast because it helped structure my time instead of just, you know, sitting around worrying about COVID. 
Exactly. It took me a while to just research everything because, as I said, I wasn't a super big podcast listener. I'm still not, but I listen more than I used to. But just all the steps, like I had no idea, you know, not only is it equipment and recording platform and hosting platform and editing and the actual recording of it, there's just so much that goes into it, getting people lined up all of that. So I just did a step-by-step kind of research project. And then I launched in June of 2020. It's nice to have somebody to split responsibilities with. So, you know, Amy's kind of the idea person and I'm the no, we can't do that or, you know, the practical. And so are you doing kind of all the steps and do you find that sometimes to be overwhelming? I'm doing every step but editing because I sat down to edit my very first episode, which again was Susie Orman-Schnall with her next book. She's a friend of mine, and so I felt comfortable starting with her. And I was like, holy smokes, there is no way I can spend all this time editing each time, learning all these new programs, whatever it was going to be. So I found an editor. First, it was a college student, and I worked with him for a while, a son of a friend of mine. And then when he got COVID and all this stuff was going on, it was kind of too much for him. I switched to a professional editor. And she's great because I actually do run a lot of stuff by her. She is my sounding board and helps me with, you know, brainstorming ideas or sound issues or just a variety of things. And I kind of will sound off things against her just to see what she thinks. But other than that, yes, I am doing it all. And it is a lot. A lot. I love it, but it's a lot. Yeah. I'm glad to know that you hired a teenager because we hired teenagers too to help us to learn some things about podcasting. So that was kind of cool that you hired a young person as well. If I had the funds, I'd love to hire an assistant, but I don't. Well, podcasts are, I think they're incredibly fun to do, but they're not huge, huge money makers, (laughs) you know, and there's a lot of fees that go along with it that I don't think people probably realize, Mm -hmm. you know, hosting fees and licensing your name and just all kinds of hidden things. And I have a website pod page that I use, and that's a monthly fee and the editing program I use. So yes, there are a lot of fees that you wouldn't necessarily realize are fees that are related to podcasting. And you do them twice a week. Is that correct? I do. Generally, Tuesdays and Fridays. Now, yours are more like 30-minute episodes as opposed to hour episodes. That's what I was just going to say, and that's why I did it that way, because I know yours are an hour or around an hour, and mine are generally between 25 and 35 minutes. So it's effectively one hour, you know, close to a little over an hour, usually a week. Now, why did you decide to do twice a week? I I don't know why exactly I picked (laughs) twice a week, to tell you the truth. (laughs) Um, She was looking to fill a lot of time in in 2020. (laughs) Because at the time, I thought, I will never fill twice a week with authors. Like that was just so mind boggling to me. But I always say now I could literally fill every day and more if I had the time, the energy, and even the desire. Mm -hmm. I don't. That's way too many interviews. But you know, if I if I wanted to, I could just interview all day long. There are so many books coming out. But I really do focus on the books that I have read and loved. I don't just willy-nilly interview people. You know, I pick the books that I have already read and really liked. And so twice a week balances out perfectly for that. As far as your reading life goes, I'm trying to figure out how many books would you say you read in a year? I read about 15 to 20 a month. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. Because I was trying to think if you have read completely all of the books that you were getting ready to interview the person for, I mean, not all the books you read are going to be winners that you want to talk about on your show. So you would have to go through quite a few books. 
Absolutely. And I definitely read every book before I talk to an author and I make sure I like the book. So, I mean, if it early on that wasn't the case because I was just getting started. I mean, I didn't dislike the books, but I wasn't as careful about picking. I just was, you know, interviewing authors, talking with them, enjoying the conversations. But as I've had to really get choosier with who I'm talking to and my own time and everything, I have really made it a hard and fast rule that I've read the book and I really liked it or I'm not doing the interview. So that that helps a lot. But I'm a huge DNFer. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm not liking a book, you know, 40 to 50 pages in, I'm like, okay, I'm done. And I keep moving. And those are not included in my 15 to 20 a month. Okay. So does doing the podcast feed a different type of joy and creativity than the literary salon? Or is it really just an extension? I mean, does it does it fulfill a different need for you? Well, they're so different. And I don't really think of myself as very creative, but it is a very joyful thing for me. I mean, I love to read. I love books. I love talking about them. And in addition to interviewing authors, after about maybe a year in, I started interviewing a few other people as well, other book lovers. And we would do like best historical fiction of a year or favorite book club titles. And I continue to grow that. So Kelly Hooker of Kelly Hook Reads Books, she and I do quarterly roundups for the last three months and talk about what our favorites were and go back and forth on that. I have Pamela Klingerhorn and Mary Weber O'Malley come on to talk about previews, like what's upcoming for summer. And those are always super popular episodes, both of those. And then on top of that, I launched this behind the scenes where once a month I talk to somebody else in the publishing industry about what they do and how that fits into everything else. So I, those are the things that probably feed my creativity more than anything because interviewing authors, I mean, I love it and it's so much fun, but you know, it's, it's decently similar each time. Right. What's been the most challenging part for you of, of doing the podcast? Probably the time. I mean, it is a huge, huge time commitment. Yes. Agreed. (laughs) Well, you said that you are fine with DNFing, but do you ever feel, I I know, and Amy and I have had many conversations about this. It's almost like this psychological thing. If I'm reading a book that I choose that I want to read versus if I'm reading a book that I feel like I have to read to sort of preview it for the podcast, they feel different. Do you have that experience at all where sometimes you'll be reading something and even if you're enjoying it because you're going to be talking about it on the podcast, it sort of feels like work? No, but I think that it's so different for me because on top of the podcast, I have the book columns. I do roundups for She Reads. I write two different columns for a big magazine here in Houston. Mm -hmm. And then I also speak to groups pretty regularly about book recommendations. So when I'm reading a book, it isn't just to see whether it would be on the podcast. I go on television here in Houston to recommend books like once a quarter. So you know, I'm reading a book to see if I'm going to recommend it any place and kind of slot it in. So for me, you know, if it looks good and I want to read it, I read it. If I'm not liking it, I say, okay, crossing this one off the list. Gotcha. But it isn't just for the podcast. You know, it's kind of for everything. And whether it's one I'm going to want to highlight somewhere. And it always makes me so happy when I find a book that I just love. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to share this various places. So I know that you have a background as a lawyer. How did you get into the book business? I've always been a huge reader. I read when I was young, all the Nancy Drews, Trixie Belden, 
I have three kids. My oldest is 22. My youngest is 17. And when my 22-year-old was born, I went part-time. And then when my 17-year-old was born, I stopped because I'd had a lot of health trouble. And I had three kids under the age of four. And so I was like, okay, I need to slow down here for a bit. So then when I picked back up, I mainly was doing a lot of volunteer work and things like that at the kids' schools, but I always loved to read. And a friend of mine said, I'm part of this Facebook group. And this was years ago, like 2014 maybe, and said, I'm part of this Facebook group and people are talking about books. And I didn't even know that kind of thing existed. So I joined and it just kind of snowballed from there. Well, it has snowballed in a major way. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you yes. are doing so many Bookish things. things. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty but it was amazing. kind of one thing at a time. You know, I launched the Instagram. Then I was working at the bookstore. Then I started writing one of the columns. Then I started, you know, it was just sort of like each thing just kind of added in. And I am busy, but I'm not as busy as I sound just because as we were talking before, like I read a book, say like the mostly true story of Tanner and Louise by Colleen Oakley, which just came out. And I I interview her for my podcast, but I also put it in one of my columns and mm. I talk about it here and I recommend it to groups and I go on TV. So it's not like I'm having to read different books for each one of these things. I don't really have to prepare a ton each time because I've already talked about that book so much, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. When you're picking a book, what is your sweet spot, your book sweet spot? Well, I wish I could answer this question better. <laughs> I am a huge mood reader. And so I don't read by any kind of, these are coming out this month, or I need this genre now. I literally, books are piled everywhere. My husband's like, oh my gosh, like we need a better system. <laughs> and I am like, okay, I'm in the mood for a thriller, or I haven't read historical fiction in a while, or this cover is really mm. calling me. And so that's what happens. And so every once in a while, I will stop a book, not to DNF it, but I'm like, you know, there's too much going on right now. This is really in depth and I can't focus on it. I need to come back to it later or I'll get pulled away with the timing deadline. Mm -hmm. But most of the time it's just, okay, this book is calling my name and I wish I could describe it better than that. <laughs> Amy totally understands that. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's me. Totally. Yeah, people talk about, oh, I've got it all organized and I can read in these three months. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I just am like, oh, this book sounds really great right now. And that's the one I pick up. Okay. So I have to ask you in your home on the bookshelves that you have, are they color coded in any way? I see <laughs> no. all these pictures on bookstagram of people like color coding all their shelves. And I'm thinking, I've got too many piles. There's no way I could do that. And even if I could, I couldn't ever find the book again if I did that. I've got my own sort of organizational system in my head, which is no organizational system at all. <laughs> that is exactly me. No, there is certainly no rainbow organizing here. <laughs> For a while, my son helped me alphabetical organize upstairs. We have in our playroom, we have these bookshelves so that I could find things, but then I never keep it like that. And there's all these books piled in my bedroom and piled downstairs. So I just physically know where they are. You know, like I'm like, oh, I'm looking for Camp Zero. Oh, yes. I remember that I left that on my desk and I go find it. I, I, you know, I don't know how I'm able to keep up with it. But every once in a while, we have a massive hunt for a book. But most of the time, I know where they are. <laughs> okay. So you talked a little bit about a, a book having a good cover. So do you ever pick up a book just because it has a pretty cover? Have you seen the cover for The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell? No. I have. I well, I yes. She has not. Here, let me let me google it. I'm going to look it up. What's <laughs> okay, it called? The Golden Spoon. The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. That cover is phenomenal, I think. So yes, I saw that cover and I was like, I don't even care what that book's about. I have to read it. So yes, there are times when I see a cover oh, and I'm like, cool. oh, now of course I don't there are certain genres I don't read. I don't really read fantasy. 
I don't read much in the way of rom-coms. I read a few. So sometimes I guess that would knock it out. But yes, there are plenty of times where I've seen a cover and I'm like, I must read that book. So what are your thoughts about, you know, certain types of covers indicate what's inside? Like most rom-coms have this sort of I don't even know how to describe cartoony it. Cartoony is what I yes, yeah. kind of cartoony look to them. It about sends me around the bend. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and historical fiction. I I love historical fiction, but I hate that so many of them have the backs of women. Like it's I always have, looking at them from behind, which I don't understand. Like I have been railing against that. That has been a huge topic actually on the podcast, not with authors whose covers look like that. <laughs> Um, other people. And I have, you know, I've just been saying it over and over again. Like, I just can't stand that constant facing away with the Eiffel Tower and, you know, just kind of the same old, same old. So I've been happy to see, I think, because I read a ton of historical fiction, that it looks like they're moving away from that. Not everybody, but at least some. And I, I can't stand the cartoony covers for the most part. They they just don't appeal to me. So I, I, I'm not a big, you know, like all the graphic stuff. Yeah. I really think. I don't know, things that are going to catch my eye better. And I will tell you, I will not read a book because of its cover too. And that's Mm. happened to me a couple of times. Mm. Well, I think people who are big genre readers like that their particular genre all have covers that look similar because they know what What to to expect expect. or they think they know what to expect. Right. It's a marketing thing. Yes. I mean, definitely. And I've interviewed cover designers and I've interviewed people in the sales department and all of that. So yes, it definitely signals something. And I get that. And, you know, the thrillers are going to look a certain way and historical fiction is going to look a certain way and rom-coms are going to look a certain way. But I still think you can work within that to have something different. You know, I don't think they all have to look alike. Yeah. Agreed. And I rarely hate a cover, but there have been a couple of times where I have, and I've just said, I can't read this book. I'm really sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Your cover sucks. So, you know. I am judging your book by its cover. (laughs) I I would never say that to the author, but I've said it to a publicist. I'm really sorry, but this cover just doesn't work for me. (laughs) I know it's terrible. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading and hopefully people won't judge these books by their covers. We are back with Cindy Burnett, who is like the queen of book salons and book columns and book podcasts. And we're going to talk about what we're reading. So Carrie... Actually, I do know what you're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it's actually one of my favorite books. So you don't need to sell me on it. Okay. Well, I'll sell everybody else. This is an oldie, but a a goodie. It's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. This is a gothic suspense novel. It was written in 1938 or published in 1938. And it is is masterful. I had read it before for fun. And recently I reread it in preparation for teaching it to my high school class. So the story begins, this is the first line of the story. Last night, I dreamt I went to Manderley again. And it becomes clear that the always unnamed narrator and her husband, Maxim, can never go back to Manderley. And they now sort of live everywhere. They sort of move from place to place, from hotel to hotel. But it becomes very clear that they no longer have secrets from each other, which suggests that at one time they did. 
So the narrator tells the story of how she met her husband, who is some 20 years her senior. They met in Monte Carlo when she was an assistant for a, a, an older rich woman. After their quick marriage, she returned with him to his ancestral home, Manderley, in England. And it becomes clear as she reminisces that there was a ghost who lived in the home, Rebecca, Maxim's wife, who died about a year prior to his remarriage. Rebecca isn't an actual ghost, but she may as well have been. So Dumarie does a, a wonderful job of setting a haunted, dreamy mood. The weather gives readers a sense of what is coming. So when it rains, when there's fog, you know that something not great is about to go down. It's a story about memory, about what it means to be a ghost, even while you're alive, about how appearance and reality are not the same. It's about the loss of innocence and about the secrets that we keep from others. So I just actually finished it. I had taken all my notes in it. And somebody I know posted on Facebook, she said uh, something like, all the books that I want to read have have these huge wait lists. Somebody give me something that does not have a wait list. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is not going to have a wait list because it was written in 1938. So, But you never know. You, you never, never know. know. Sometimes it, things it come might, back. It might be popular on Book Talk. I don't follow Book Talk. <laughs> Daphne du Maurier is one of the greatest finds that I have had, like probably in the last 15 years of an author who is old. And I will say like, and our Carrie and I are in a book club together. That's how she and I met. It's been going on for almost 20 years. But our book club did, Rebecca. Do you remember that, Carrie? That that was one of our selections years ago? Mm, I don't know if I remember that. You don't remember that? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, almost every year, somebody picks a classic. That, that's not normally what we do, but a lot of them are flops <laughs> with the group generally. But Rebecca was not. That was one that everybody loved. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good so. one. Well, Cindy, what have you been reading? So I just recently read Drowning by T.J. Newman. I don't know if you guys read Falling. Oh, well, I have not. I have it. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I remember being so intrigued by it because a very good friend of mine uh, is a retired flight attendant, and I remember telling her about it. So So tell me about Drowning. Well, I didn't read Falling. I will just say that because that same summer, Hostage by Claire McIntosh came out. And I'm a huge Claire McIntosh fan. It was the same idea, a hostage situation on an airplane. We fly enough that I was like, okay, how many hostages on an airplane stories can I read? (laughs) But I remember people loved Falling. So when I saw that Drowning was coming, I was like, okay, I'll read that. It is such a page turner. And I passed it to my husband when I was done and he read it in like a day and a half, which never happens. He's like, don't talk to me. I have to read this book. (laughs) But it has to do with a flight that leaves Hawaii. And six minutes after it takes off, the whole, like all the engines start breaking down or turning off or something happens and the plane crashes into the water. And so then it has to do with what happens once it crashes into the water people realizing there's been an issue and the plane sinks. And so it just has to do with trying to rescue them initially because some people were in the water, some people were on the plane as it went down, and then it toggles back and forth to pre-crash in their lives and then post-crash the people in the water and the people trying to to rescue them. It is so good, so, so well done because I can be a little picky with my thrillers. I really feel like I want them to seem reasonable enough, you know, yeah. that there's not something that you're like, there's no way people said that or did that. And this was just such a page turner. I, I thought it was phenomenal. So many twists and turns. And every time 
you thought you were they were all set, then something else would happen. It sounds really good, but maybe not one that I want to read when I'm getting ready to take a, a long flight over water. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I actually read it on spring break in Florida, but not on the plane. I waited till we got there. And then, you know, and then the funny part when we were leaving Florida, my son and I, we split up because my son and I were going to look at some colleges and the rest of the family was coming back home. And they had all this trouble shutting the door of mm. our plane oh. and they couldn't get it you know, shut right. And they had some guy come from the front, not the pilot. I don't know who he was. And he was like tucking all this stuff in around the door. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know that I can fly on this plane. And they got the door closed and then they had some other mechanical issues. So we didn't actually take off on that plane. And I was so relieved. Oh, oh my God. Because I mean, I don't want some random guy just trying to close the door <laughs> and like sticking towels around the cracks, you know? <laughs> I know. I literally had never seen anything like that before. And I was like, uh, excuse me, who are you? And what is happening here? So I was very happy that that we got off that plane and just ended up getting on another plane and coming home because it kind of wasted the whole day. But it is not one to read on the plane. I do agree with that. But I'll tell you, it is so, so well done. Probably one of the best thrillers I've ever read. Oh, wow. wow. I love a good thriller recommendation because I'm like you. I like a really good thriller, but I'm kind of picky about them. And I feel like there was such a surge of especially like domestic noir and stuff right after like Gone Girl. And we, you know, with the big twist, I mean, how many twists can you come up with that seem reasonable? So exactly. I'm, and I'm not a yeah. huge domestic suspense person anyway. Like yeah. I just don't really care about all the girlfriends and the mistresses and, you know, the yeah. unreliable wife. So I just love these thrillers that take place elsewhere and are doing something else. And this one doesn't come out until May 23rd. Okay. okay. Very good. Awesome. Add it to your list. Cool. I will. All right, Amy, what are you going to, Share with us. I'm going to talk about a book called Killers of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayborn. And I'm listening to this by audiobook. It's narrated by Jane Oppenheimer and Christina Delane. And I've been on the waiting list at the library for this one for a while. And I'm so thankful that I stuck it out because this is such a treat to listen to. So this is the story of Billy, Helen, Natalie, and Mary Ellen and their four friends in their 60s who start out the book on a cruise ship to celebrate their retirement. And it's a retirement from a profession that most wouldn't think of for, for 60-ish year old women. They are a troop of trained assassins who were recruited when they were in their 20s to work for an international group that works outside the law and outside the confines of world governments to, shall we say, take care of bad people. So this group, it's called the Museum. It's a vigilante group. Um, and they started out after World War II hunting down Nazis. But in the 1970s up to present day, they focused more on cruel dictators, sex traffickers, corrupt judges. You get the idea. And so while they're on this retirement cruise, they soon discover that they seem to be the ones now that are being hunted, which of course brings them out of their retirement and they must figure out who is trying to kill them and why, and of course, take care of this very sticky problem. So this book is very, very funny in places. I laughed out loud. It is action-packed. And of course, it addresses how women in general are underestimated, but older women, especially to some older women are invisible. And I also appreciated how these women who are all friends, uh, also there were some tensions 
in their relationships, which was very relatable. So overall, this was just a flat out fun read. And to me, it was like if you crossed the international intrigue of a James Bond movie, which I'm a big James Bond movie fan, with the female assassin theme of the TV series Killing Eve and maybe throw in a little Thelma and Louise and a touch of a geriatric sex in the city, you would have killers of a certain age. So I'm about 70% through the book and I can't wait to see what happens. And I'm hoping that there's another one because I'd like to spend some more time with these women. And I'm not usually a series reader, but for this, I would make an exception. And we didn't talk about this in the first part of the show, but a new portion of your podcast, Cindy, is that you have a section where people can write into you asking for read-alikes. And so I'm going to ask you for a read-alike. What is a book that you would recommend to me that is somewhat like Killers of a Certain Age? Well, before I do that, I just want to say how much I also loved that book. It was one of my favorite books of last year. I love Deanna Rayburn herself personally. She'd come to the bookstore a number of times. I've read her longstanding series about Veronica Speedwell. So I was thrilled when she wrote this. And I think there is some chatter about her writing a follow-up. Yay, yay. <laughs> it's just so well done. But Rita likes. Tell me what it is you like so much about the book in terms of wanting to find a Rita like. Uh well, I I liked that it had this sort of international intrigue piece of it, sort of like a James Bond movie. Because like I said, I'm a big James Bond movie fan. I used to watch those with my dad when I was growing up. But also, I love this women being underestimated, especially older women being underestimated and and how they sort of break out of that stereotype. Off the top of my head, the James Bond part's a little harder. I think that's one of the things I like so much about Killers of a Certain Age was that it was taking older women in these spy positions. But with respect to the older women being underestimated, I feel like I am a huge reader of that subgenre. And I think there are several that would make great read-alikes. One is Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting by Claire Pooley. Have you read that no, one? No, I have not. And so Iona was a model and had done, she was kind of the it girl in her younger years. And she now is in London and she works at a marketing agency who completely undervalues her. And she takes the train back and forth to work every day with the same people. Nobody speaks to each other. They don't interact until one day somebody chokes and several of them step in and this group become friends. And so she's kind of the leader of the group and you learn her backstory and you realize there's so much more to her. And I just think it's a wonderful story. There's no spying, but there's a lot about aging and having these beautiful lives and people not understanding that and almost becoming invisible. Oh, that sounds like a, that sounds like a good one. Thank you so much. And you know, there is one more, The Keeper of Stories by Sally Page, and the older woman was a spy. She It's also set in London, and she's now in her 90s, and she's not the main character, but she's kind of the secondary main character. And this woman cleans houses, and she's the keeper of stories. Everybody wants to tell them her life story, and she befriends this Mrs. B, who had worked, I think, for MI6, and so she does know all these cool things, and her family's trying to... Sh- you know, shunt her into a retirement home, but she wants to hold on to her home. And it's another story more like Iona where groups of people come together, but you learn so much about this older woman and her very cool life. Oh, awesome. This sounds great. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. I've had so much fun with the read-alike requests. It's really been a fun thing to have added to the podcast. 
because who doesn't love to give, if you're a book lover, who doesn't love to give book recommendations? You know, when, when you get to know somebody and find out the kind of things that you like, I'm constantly sending book recommendations to people who haven't even asked me for them, but like friends <laughs> and I'll see something and I'm like, oh, that sounds like something that so-and-so would like, or I've just read something like, oh, so-and-so would love this book. And I'll send them like a Goodreads link and say, I think you should try this. Now, you know, like I said, they're completely unsolicited. So maybe that's annoying. I highly doubt it. I'm sure people love it. I get texts and emails all the time. And I'm sure afterwards people are like, why did I ask her? Because I will send like two or three. And then an hour later, I'm like, oh, how could I not have remembered this? And I send two or three more. And then by the next day, I'm like, okay, I've sent you 15 titles. I promise I'm not sending you any. But what I liked about the read-alikes was that you know, Amazon has algorithms and Goodreads has algorithms. And I look at the books they're suggesting and I was like, that has absolutely nothing to do with the book I just finished. And so I think to connect up what it is a reader liked about a book and then put a similar book or a similar theme into their hands is just so rewarding. Yeah. Well, those all sound like great titles. I think we're going to stop one more time. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to put Cindy on the hot seat. are back with Cindy Burnett, the host or one of the co-hosts of the Conversations from a Page Literary Salon in Houston, Texas, and the podcast host, Thoughts from a Page. Are you ready for your question, Cindy? I am. All right. So you studied to be and worked as an attorney prior to your bookish endeavors. So you pick either tell us something that you don't miss about being an attorney or something you do miss about being an attorney. Well, I may do a tiny bit of both. Okay. I miss I miss the people. I loved the law firm that I worked at for years, and it was a really tight-knit group of people. And I loved my class that I went in with. That was also a tight-knit group of people, so I keep up with a lot of them. So I miss working with them, seeing them more often. But I don't miss the work and the deadlines and the hours and talk about a lot, a lot of work. So what what area did you focus in? I did healthcare until I had my oldest daughter, and then I did arbitration litigation, like people would be suing Morgan Stanley and people like that, and we would be defending. All right. It isn't as cool as it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so question number two. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Austin, so I've been to Texas quite a few times. But there's the saying that everything is bigger in Texas. And so as a native Texan, what is something that is big that people who live elsewhere may not think about? Or is there something that's tiny that kind of goes against that adage? Well, I think the state itself is actually so much bigger than people realize. Like if you head in on 10 from Louisiana and you cross the border into Texas, one of the first signs you see is El Paso, 935 miles. And so I think people don't realize while Texas is big and everything is bigger in Texas – how big it is, and that it could literally take you that long to enter in Louisiana and exit in New Mexico, and you know you'd be driving and driving and driving. My husband spent part of his childhood in Texas. They lived actually outside of Houston in Orange, Texas, and all of his family lived here in Louisville. And every summer they would make a road trip up to see his family in in Kentucky. And he said that the majority of their driving time was spent just trying to get out of Texas. That once they got out of Texas, it wasn't near, you know, they they had a few hours left, but just getting out of Texas took forever. 
my daughter goes to school in New York City, and last year I ended up needing to drive her home. And I laughed because the first six hours of our – no, it was the first four hours of our trip, we went through six states. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, you get you get where it gets a little more spread out, Mississippi, Alabama, and you go from there. But then you get to Texas, and you're still driving. But I just couldn't even believe it. I thought, oh, my gosh, like driving six hours or four hours in Texas – you're, you're still in Texas pretty much wherever you're going. So it was just kind of a funny thing. I was like, oh, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Like we just were ticking them off. Maryland, I mean, they all just were so small comparatively. And of course we were just going through sections of them, but still it just cracked me up. And then you get to Texas and you could drive forever. How long of a drive was that? Driving from New York to very Texas? Very long. Um, let me think about this. I think it was 28 hours. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. Yeah, we did it in three days. Oh man. Ooh. I was going to say, and 27 of them were in Texas, right? No, uh-huh. just kidding. <laughs> no, thankfully, where Houston is. Um, but it did sometimes feel like that. Like, really, so much of the drive was like three states. You know, mm-hmm. it was kind of funny. I thought, well, this is interesting. But going through all of those so quickly was very cool. But other than that, I don't know. I, I mean, I do think that there's so much land in Texas. Things are more spread out. You know, that's the other thing I find probably not where you guys are, but like if you get up to the East Coast where things are older and have been around Mm -hmm. for so long, everything's just so crammed together. And here, a lot of times we have a lot more space. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. You're a fan of visiting the national parks and with vacation season coming pretty soon, we want to know a national park you haven't visited yet, but want to. There are two that I am dying to go to still, Yellowstone and Acadia in Maine. Mm. Okay. I, ha- I haven't been to Yellowstone, but I have been to Acadia, and it is just as amazing as, you know, people make it sound. <laughs> we went a couple of years ago. Now, if you can go not in the summertime, because it is crazy crowded in the summertime. Yes. And I want to go on up into Canada. I only have three states that I still haven't been to, and Maine is one of them. So I, it's on my list for that to cross off, you know, three remaining states. And then also I would like to go up into Canada as well. So yes, I think that would be great. We go to Rocky Mountain every summer and we just love it. I mean, to me, it is just the perfect park. So it's one I always recommend to people as well. Okay. I do want to know, what is a national park? I mean, it could be Rocky Mountain that you think more people should know about and visit? Well, that's hard because Rocky Mountain is pretty well known. Mm -hmm. So if it's that should know about, then it's probably not Rocky Mountain. I feel like everybody should visit it. It's decently centrally located. It's a beautiful park. It's super well-maintained, a lot of great trails. Because as we visit some of these others, I find, oh, that's interesting that so much has been put into Rocky Mountain and developing it and making sure people can enjoy it. And that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. But another one that we really liked when we visited was Mount Rainier. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was beautiful. My kids loved it. There's really more to do there than I would have initially thought. There's tons of hiking trails and the mountain is just beautiful. Hmm. Very cool. Sometimes I do, like when I'm looking at the national parks, I'll search for which national parks are the least visited. And those are the ones that I'm like, I think those are the ones I want to visit first, just because, you know, they don't get as much attention. I kind of feel badly for them. (laughs) As if they had feelings. (laughs) As if they had feelings, I know. (laughs) And Bryce is really cool in Utah. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful with all the hoodoos and everything. So that's another neat. I mean, I could talk about national parks forever (laughs) because we have visited a lot of them. Is it kind of a bucket list thing where you'd like to visit all the national parks? 
I don't know about all the national parks because there are a lot of them. But we road trip a decent amount. Like that's why driving home from New York really wasn't that big a deal mm-hmm. because, you know, I could listen to music, listen to audiobooks. But we we do drive a lot. And so anytime we're doing that, when we map out a trip somewhere, we always try to pick up whatever parks are on our way. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, Cindy, it has been so great chatting with you and learning all about the cool bookish endeavors you have. You're a busy lady. Well, I have loved chatting with both of you all too and being on your podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm so glad that you asked me because I've been enjoying so many of your episodes now. You can find information about Cindy Burnett at her websites, www.cfapage.net and at thoughtsfromapage.com and on Instagram at thoughtsfromapage. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. And the best way for other listeners to hear about us is from you. So if you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. 